Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Today, my colleague Akiva Malamut and I have our editor's roundtable, and we have a special guest. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. He is not a lawyer, but we've invited him on anyway to discuss the recent Trump indictment in Washington, D.C., which I realize we were recording this on August 9th. That indictment only came out a week ago, which has just reminded me of the experience of the Trump years where it felt like six months had gone by and you realize it had only been 36 hours of news. Wally, let me start by asking you, we have been hearing a lot of conflicting things from different corners and ideological perspectives about the contents and legal theories of this particular indictment, which seems to be one of many. So to give us maybe a foundation for our conversation today, can you summarize which criminal acts the indictment actually accuses former President Trump of? Sure. And first, thanks for having me on the show. Um, it cites four federal criminal laws, and uh, this is what Smith and his prosecutors are going to need to prove. Uh, three of them are conspiracy counts, and one of them is uh, not. The four counts are conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, uh, actual obstruction of or attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and finally, conspiracy to deprive persons of protected rights, often known as civil rights. Now, those are at, the first point people may notice is that uh, three of them are conspiracy counts, and that's legally significant because when you're charging conspiracy, although you have to prove some additional things, there are some things you don't have to prove, such as that the conspiracy actually succeeded. Uh, if a conspiracy aims to do something criminal and there is at least one overt act taken by one of the participants, then it doesn't matter whether you actually, in this case, stole the election or not. It doesn't matter whether the official you try to corrupt actually agreed to be corrupted. It doesn't matter whether uh, any document you may have forged was accepted as genuine by a uh, government panel that was looking at it. Uh, none of those things need to succeed if you have been conspiring toward a crime. So that's part of the significance. Uh, one of the objections to the indictment is, but wait a minute, none of this worked, so how can there be a crime? Well, that's how. And of course, on one of the four counts, namely obstruction or attempt to obstruct, they go beyond conspiracy and say, uh, we think we can prove criminality and what was actually done uh, without uh, uh, conspiracy uh, frame framing. Does this mean, I mean, one of the big objections we've been hearing and one of the tactics that particularly people on kind of the MAGA Trumpist right have been using is that this indictment represents a direct assault on the First Amendment. That this is that this is criminalizing Trump's God-given right, constitutional right to speak his mind about an election, even if he's wrong about malfeasances in it or the fact that it was illegitimate or whatever else he he and his people have been talking about, um, and and so it's it's a problem in that regard, and then it's also a problem in that it requires that he basically knew that his speech 
was false, that he was lying about this, um, but that if he actually believed it, then this indictment doesn't work. You, you've outlined two big points, and I'm going to have to take them more at a time because they're both big. Uh, the one about uh, where does First Amendment protected free speech end and criminality begin uh, is central and important. And I've tried to answer that because uh, many people that I deeply respect uh, and have uh, worked with uh, on First Amendment issues um, find some merit in that. I don't. But because they do, I want to take that very seriously and try to outline as best I can why it fails. The the indictment itself, and it's 45 pages, 45 highly readable pages, so I, I do urge people to go and actually read it. Uh, the indictment uh, lists a bunch of different speech acts, uh, and that can easily throw uh, the reader at first into thinking, oh, wait a minute, each thing they've devoted a paragraph to, they consider a criminal offense, which is not how that works. Uh, if you've got a criminal offense to bomb a building, and one of the paragraphs is they went out and bought some wires at a hardware store, everyone knows that buying wires at a hardware store is not a criminal offense. Uh, it only would become one as part of a wider scheme. So that's the first way of understanding why there is so much speech in the successive paragraphs describing the different things. In the absence of that uh, last couple of steps in which they are attempting to, in the prosecutor's view, uh, defraud the United States or obstruct an official proceeding, etc., uh, the earlier ones would have no uh, legal effect of, of criminality whatsoever. And the prosecutors agree. The prosecutors throw in some language about uh, the speech and advocacy here is not uh, being considered uh, unlawful, and indeed we recognize that he has constitutional rights uh, to do those things in isolation when not combined with the others. So in that sense, there is broad agreement as to um, so some of this. But So the question is always going to be, um, uh, you know, those last couple of steps or the, those uh, ingredients that change it from being uh, just a, a, a line of things that he said to a um, uh, possible offense, uh, how solid are those? What are those? And uh, what are his defenses? Now, I want to pause for a moment. People talk about speech. The other part of the First Amendment that is, plays a big role here and that we need to uh, keep as a separate mental category is uh, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. Uh, we know if we followed these things for a while that it's one of the reasons why uh, uh, lobbying of the government uh, has some constitutional rights. Uh, you can't simply ban it because there is that right to petition for the redress of grievances. And so part of uh, the defense of Trump and his um, advocates on this point is that uh, even things that went on behind the scenes um, uh, where he was talking to particular officials might get the benefit of that uh, First Amendment protection for uh, trying to get his grievances redressed. Although a president, he, you could say that he was a candidate who was trying to get his grievances redressed. Isn't that protected? And the answer is, to some extent, it is protected. Uh, and uh, drawing that line is, is you know, going to be something the courts will be asked to do. So just to jump in here, I think a point of clarification, the 
the case, as I see it, is not about whether Trump has free speech rights, but it's about whether, as Walter said, he has rights to use his free speech to then defraud or pressure election officials not to count ballots and so on. And so there's ultimately a confusion here about whether they, uh, about whether the issue is speech or speech in service of another crime. And I think the emphasis should be on the fact that it's in service of another crime. Um, I am not a lawyer or a legal expert, but I was curious for Walter, what, uh, which of the statutes do you think is the most significant or serious in terms of um, actually calling Trump to account for that, for that sort of attempt? Well, I don't think any of the four different bases are obviously weak. Each of them has certain difficulties of proof, uh, and each of them has certain similarities between what the prosecution is doing and earlier cases that have been won by prosecutors. Uh, I will say that uh, we, we may as well jump in and address something that uh, many people find interesting about this, which is that it uh, simultaneously does and doesn't address uh, what people consider the most serious things that Trump did. Uh, in particular, it doesn't say, uh, in so many words, that he was trying to pull off the equivalent of a coup, although that's how many of us would think of what he was doing. Uh, there is no uh, USC section such and such saying you can't pull a coup. Uh, the Constitution has things to say about that, uh, but you have to uh, show in the absence of an anti-coup law, you have to show that it violated other things. So, so first, no count of, wait a minute, you tried to stage a coup. And secondly, there is missing... Uh, uh, and, and I'm sure on purpose, uh, counts such as incitement, which many people thought were uh, the central to Trump's guilt that day, uh, but which uh, the prosecutors decided, and I think with some good reason, uh, were um, sufficiently hard to prove, given what I as a libertarian uh, actually applaud in incitement law and sedition law and so forth. Namely, we make those things super hard to prove. That's just a fact of life. Very few people ever get convicted of incitement or sedition because the definitions are so narrow. What Trump did, you could say, is the moral equivalent of incitement or sedition. I'll, you know, if you say that, I might nod, but it's not the legal definition of it necessarily. So, so they stayed away from all those things. They, instead, they stuck with four seemingly technical, although not actually all that technical, areas of federal law where there's a long record in each of the four cases of people being convicted uh, by the sorts of interpretations and uh, uh, legal applications that the prosecution is asking for here. One of the interesting things about the indictment is it lists – and it doesn't name, although we have subsequently figured out who they all were – a handful of unindicted co-conspirators. And I think all of them are – if I remember correctly, all of them are lawyers. There's one who's a consultant. The consultant. Okay, be, that's but... right. He was the one we couldn't figure out for a while but has been now identified. Um, but as but the, the only person indicted so far is – Donald Trump and and at least from like my social media feeds there is just on the kind of hashtag resist side of uh, the the political spectrum there's just this absolute glee memes about him going to prison um and and just this exuberance that he's finally going to be got cuz he's the named guy in this 
as you said, it's very clear and it appears damning indictment that I agree everyone should read, not just because it's a good explanation, but also because it kind of immediately became one of the most important documents in American history when it was released. To, to address that first point, uh, it was a choice of the prosecutors rather than something inevitable that Trump was the only one named. In an, a different prosecution, they might have chosen to uh, bring in some of those uh, named uh, or, or unnamed, rather, co-conspirators as defendants, but they didn't do so in this case. The best explanation I've seen, it is not officially explained, but the best rationale I've seen is that uh, the prosecutors um, recognized that if they were uh, naming multiple people, it would be a considerably more complicated case and would take considerably longer. Uh, they believe the important part of this case is the part against Trump and that it will go much faster and with fewer legal complications uh, if they don't name anyone else for now. But does this open up, does they kind of, the the sorts of people who are the unindicted co-conspirators and we're engaging in a lot of this activity provide a potential out for Trump in the sense that he was this longtime delusional guy who was convinced he could never lose anything. So therefore, if he does lose, he something has, you know, it's it's because of dishonesty, corruption, and so on. So he genuinely believes that the the election was stolen from him. And he surrounded himself by lawyers, with lawyers who are telling him not only yes, it's true that the election was stolen from you, but we can fix it. Here are plans for doing it that have all of these prongs that the the indictment goes into. And so basically, he's not guilty because he wasn't setting out to engage in a criminal conspiracy. He was just listening to what his lawyers were telling him was the right thing to do in the face of the evidence as he understood it. And so his lawyers might be guilty of criminal conspiracy and defrauding the United States, but he himself was just kind of a dumb stooge taken in by a bunch of corrupt attorneys. Okay. Well, you've got three kind of defense cards uh, that uh, you've put on the table there, all of which are of some significance, none of which I would regard as as an ace card or or perhaps we should say a trump card in this case uh, uh, that that will necessarily win. You have uh, in uh, in order the, uh, you know, I genuinely believed in all this craziness card, the uh, I was doing it on legal advice card, and the uh, others were deep enough into the conspiracy that they may have broken the law, but the parts I heard about uh, don't make me a criminal conspirator. And uh, he can and probably will try each of those three, starting from the back uh, it is a familiar trouble in conspiracy cases that uh, you um, uh, are not allowed to find them all automatically guilty once you find some criminality. Uh, some of them might not have been uh, deeply enough enmeshed in the conspiracy. And we know that sometimes organized crime bosses get off uh, because they've maintained enough distance uh, as far as provable on-the-record evidence goes. Um, we know, and I don't mean to uh, <coughs> derogate his character, we know that Trump has spent a lot of time studying the history of organized crime and has modeled some of his office practices as far as 
not writing things down and uh, so forth on what has been successful in avoiding legal accountability for um, you know colorful New York figures of the past. All that aside, the fact is that some prosecutions for conspiracy fail on that basis. Uh, as for the other two, a lot is made of uh, uh, following lawyers' advice. Uh, obviously, in an edge case, uh, lawyers said it was okay for me to, you know, come into the bank with with guns drawn and and, and rob them. Uh, people aren't going to believe that. It's it's clear enough, and the prosecution went to some trouble to establish that. Uh, Trump was shopping around for favorable advice. Uh, he, uh, although there were some credentials there on the part of people like Eastman, uh, it was uh, extremely out there, uh, adventuresome uh, legal advice. Uh, and Trump was simultaneously getting lots of advice from people like his own White House counsel and Secretary Bill Barr of the Justice Department, his own appointees, uh, elite lawyers, uh, who were t telling him flatly that he couldn't do this or that. So, no, that's not a get-out-of-jail-card-free. It's something that uh, they might use to try to sway a jury uh, in their direction. And as for the issue of state of mind, we forget sometimes that courts constantly assess state of mind. It is an element of lots of crimes, as well as lots of civil offenses that are raised in lawsuits. It happens all the time that people have to figure out whether the management of some chemical company knew that some process was hazardous, how it was hazardous, you know, what the consequences might be. Uh, the law establishes those things all the time. Now, sometimes, especially in criminal law, where it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt, enough reasonable doubt is left that uh, a defendant can get off. I'm not uh, dismissing that. But at the same time, every day people get convicted by that same beyond a reasonable doubt uh, standard uh, over states of mind. So again, the, uh, the indictment uh, includes a bunch of material uh, suggesting that in private uh, or in, even in some public settings, uh, Trump may have slipped and admitted knowledge that he had in fact lost the election. Uh, and there are other things that are in there that uh, are meant to build toward that case. But again, the fact that the prosecutors have to make that case doesn't mean they're being asked to do something that prosecutors don't do all the time. I would add, by the way, that there are some counts in here that don't require the state of mind uh, uh, condition that people talk about. Uh, a bunch of them do, but at the same time, uh, if you have engaged in a conspiracy to enter false uh, government documents, forged documents, you might say, to be unsympathetic, uh, then uh, state of mind doesn't get you off. You're just not allowed to file forged documents, uh, whatever your state of mind. So I think. Um Beyond the strict legal components of this is are the sort of social political stuff, and I'm not nearly as legally informed as Walter is. So this is something I think I could speak to a little bit more. But there's been a lot of debate, and Walter actually has a great piece about this from in the Unpopulist about a year ago about whether this is the kind of thing whether we should be indicting presidents, we should be indicting Trump, and so on at all. Does this speak to something about our institutional health? Um, and ordinarily, I would say that this is bad for the society. It creates a certain kind of social division and polarization that's unnecessary. Um, but certainly the, the degree of the crimes are so intensive um, that, I, that I agree with Walter's, uh, Walter's interpretation in, in The Unpopulist that it's very much worth holding the president to account. Um, 
and that there's a very important basic rules of procedure, the most fundamental pieces of a democratic society, which is the peaceful transfer of power, were threatened um, over the course of Trump's challenges to the election in ways that are quite serious and in ways that perhaps have not been paralleled in early American history in terms of a president's challenge to the basic structures of democratic um, democratic society. I don't think even something like Nixon or Watergate um, parallels with trying to basically overturn the results of an election um, to the same extent. And so I think um, on an institutional health basis, this is an extremely important move. Um, there is concern from the perspective of polarization about whether this feeds polarization, whether this creates um, more people who are alienated from the system, who distrust in the institutions and so on because they believe in Trump. And so Trump becomes their bellwether for whether um, they're being listened to about whether the institutions are accountable. Um, but I think these are people for whom the institutions were always unaccountable, for whom Trump was just a confirmation of beliefs they already had. And so prosecuting Trump actually makes very little difference in terms of whether their perception of the of our political institutions' uh, accountability is there. So I think to some extent what you have is reconfirmation of everyone's biases rather than any kind of additional polarization or any kind, a kind of additional breakdown in social trust. Um, and the real problem is something much deeper, which has to do with the larger sense of social trust in society and that can't be resolved through a political to a, through any kind of legal decision. But the court's job is to hold people to account. The court's job is not to evaluate whether this will improve the, so, the social and civic health of society overall. Um, and so I just want to emphasize the, the importance, I think, of disregarding the larger social and civic implications and focusing on making sure that institutions hold people to account. And I would add that in considering some of the wider social dangers, such as uh, let's say it were predictable that prosecuting Trump would lead to rioting in the streets. Uh, I would say that that's a separate calculation for prosecutors and for judges. Judges, I truly believe, need to um, focus on what the law requires and not uh, take into account uh, some of the questions of social mollification. You know, their job is to rule whether the law has been violated and what the proper penalty for that is. Prosecutors, I do think, are entitled to take some of those things into account. Uh, or were it a president deciding whether or not to exercise power or pardon, then questions of polarization might be relevant there. Uh, if I could, I'd like to go back to a year ago when I wrote that piece and say a little more about my rationale, because I came to it somewhat reluctantly. Uh, and and I think that there are arguments of very considerable strength uh, for the American tradition of not prosecuting former administrations. And that goes for presidents, but it also goes in general for if, if there was miscellaneous misconduct in an administration that had just been voted out of office. Uh, the approach of most American new administrations is um, 
don't uh, be super strict. Uh, you know, go after perhaps very egregious stuff uh, that is agreed to be very egregious, but don't um, uh, become a um, uh, Javert or, or whatever. And I think that was an appropriate and healthy kind of tradition for us to have, partly because there is this obvious tit-for-tat danger that can happen in which um, erring on the side of being stricter means that karma comes around and the next time the White House changes party, uh, you know, you've given permission for the same thing or worse to happen. Uh, beyond that, uh, uh, people who occupy the White House uh, also occupy a, a web of legal obligations, some of which are hard to understand, some of which are uh, added every couple of years by Congresses. Uh, and uh, they can sometimes simply follow up and break the law, um, uh, which is why, again, in Trump's case, uh, the Factors that I identify as um, arguing for lenience toward previous administrations just blatantly aren't there. I, I should say, by the way, parenthetically, that when I uh, wrote this piece, much of the pushback I got was from people saying, you know, what an awful person you are, Mr. Olson, to ever think that there should be a presumption against prosecuting former officials. You know, you're an elitist or you uh, want there to be one standard of law for the powerful and, and one not. And uh, so a lot of people just sort of tuned me out without getting to the second half of the piece <laughs> about how, uh, you know, even though I came to the whole issue with that set of presumptions, uh, Trump's conduct and uh, the current situation overcame those presumptions, uh, uh, partly because he is so very unrepentant, uh, partly because the acts, as you said, Akiva, are so peculiarly dangerous in that they affect the succession of power, uh, something that we simply can't can't afford to allow to be endangered, partly because he remains in public life, uh, publicly announcing basically the, uh, on engraved cards in, that he intends to do the same sort of stuff again, should he get back in. And and the, the final point that I make in that piece a year ago is that, you know, I'm very understanding of the law accepting imperfect outcomes in order to get social peace. I could go on and on about how litigation can only be understood as a way of accepting imperfect imperfect compromises because otherwise people would ca uh, carry on grudges for generations. Uh, but uh, if you're going to sacrifice perfect justice for social peace, you need to get the social peace. And tr Trump has not taken the Nixon deal. Nixon uh, got dealt better outcomes than he probably deserved in the Gerald Ford pardon. But his half of it was that he then seemed to resolve from his actions never to be a divisive force in American life again, to serve as some sort of elder statesman, you know, handing down pronouncements that never particularly uh, riled anyone up against the other officials, but just gave, uh, you know, what, what wisdom he could from his experience. Trump so obviously isn't giving us the social peace. So we can't count that on one side of the ledger as an advantage. I very much agree with what Walter said. And I just think it's important to reiterate how divisive a figure Trump is, how unique and unusual he is for American history. I have a kind of agnosticism about prosecuting officials because Unlike some of Walter's critics, I have uh, some some uh, concern about holding people to account. But as Walter said, I think there's also a concern about political gamesmanship and about um, subsequent administrations persecuting um, 
the one that came before them and then the one that comes after them prosecutes them and there's a kind of snowball effect there and so i i'm a little bit back and forth on this on this question um but i do think it's important to emphasize as, as walter said um that the the degree to which trump's entire political program is based on undermining american institutions uh both in terms of the undermining of political power, but even when he was in office, the idea that the sort of general rules of the game and social norms that democracy abides by, cert- certainly the rules of civility, but also rules of um, uh, of, a, of collecting power in the executive and so on, are all things that Trump uh, pushed against um, and tried to fundamentally devolve the balance of power so that he could have more and more um, executive uh, discretionary power. And so these are all things that I find quite worrisome and think we should take seriously. And really the uh, previous pre- the previous kinds of incidents pale in comparison. And so those are all things uh, to take into account. Um, and again, as I, th- I really appreciate what Walter said, you better make sure that you have civil peace if you're going to Avoid uh, prosecution um, of, for this, for this, or avoid legal consequences for the sake of that civil peace. And as I said, I think the state of affairs in the country, the ladder of polarization, is not. It's not like Trump is some sort of fueler of that per se. Trump is a bellwether for the state of the country to begin with. Um, and now he may have his own personal charisma. He has his own personal ability to channel that state of alienation, but the alienation there exists independently of Trump. And so unless we were to say that Trump is the unique uh non reason for all this political upheaval, then I would be uh inclined unless unless we were to declare that he was he was the main reason for all of this, um, which I find what about which I'm somewhat skeptical, um, then we should have reasons to be following the law. Thank you for pointing out that uh, Trump is not causing all these problems all by himself. One of the things that The Unpopulist as a publication has been particularly valuable on is reminding us that some of the things that we associate with Trump are going on in many other countries around the world, often countries with a considerable tradition of democracy, rule of law, classical liberal values, uh, and that Therefore, part of Trumpism uh, reflects something that you can see in countries as different as Sweden and India and and so forth. Uh, Some of these movements in some of these countries have resulted in uh, criminal charges, and others, they seem to have stayed within the letter of the law, even as they advocate things that uh, the three of us may find very objectionable. But um, I think that has to be part of the the overall answer is that uh, these movements are legal so long as they do not violate the law. When they do violate the law, um, uh, most civilized countries recognize that uh, the legal system has to respond. I think this also gets to a fundamental difference with Trumpism and the Trump administration and and a lot of Trump's defenders in general, the movement that he represents. Um, and And that is – the executive branch has lied to the American public for as long as we've had an executive branch, 
presidents lie all the time, agencies lie all the time. None of that is new, although it's something that I think is even to this day is acknowledged less than it ought to be. But there was a real difference was that basically all of the arguments that get that Trump advances, that the people close to him advanced, were throughout his administration were basically offered in bad faith. Like they had the they had the appearance of being arguments, but they were really just kind of like bullshitting in order to advance this underlying like drive to power and so on. And this is this is a characteristic. Like I have I have long argued that Trumpism and Trump himself represented at the very least kind of a proto-fascist movement within American politics. And this is this is a characteristic of fascist movements going back as long as we have them is that it's not as as my friend Matt McManus has referred to it, it's a postmodern conservatism. It's not about like we have a set of core principles and truths that we're arguing for. It's more just we're kind of throwing things out there in order to pretend to engage in arguments so that we can kind of get people to go along with us. And and it seems like the American elites, American government, journalists, and so on, analysts had a hard time kind of grasping this characteristic of the Trump administration and Trumpism. And so there was this constant effort to be like, oh, they are engaged. This isn't really all that different from the way things have been before. They're not really dissembling. They're not obfuscating. They're not lying all the time. They're not bullshitting. They're just its policy differences and so on. Um, and and I that I think we're continuing to see that in in the response, like oh he actually believed it, or oh they just had they had views about this, and this seems to be why it is necessary. I think one of the big reasons it's necessary to prosecute this is that if we don't prosecute Trump in this regard, um, and if you know if he's not convicted for this or one of his many many other crimes that he's been charged with. Um, it's going to reinforce the workability of that kind of postmodern conservative approach. It's going to encourage people to double down on it. It's going to say that the institutional protections against these kinds of movements and these kinds of power grabs don't actually function. Um, and and so to some extent, the I think the argument against the not prosecuting him on the ground that it's going to be divisive, it's going to be polarizing, is exactly that, as Akiva said, like Trump's not really driving it. Like they don't, they don't really care about the contents of the legal arguments. They don't really care about the principle of well, as you said, we don't want this like tit for tat, every administration prosecuting one before. They don't really care about those things. This is just another way for them to grab and maintain power. And I think we need as a country to come down really hard on that in order to demonstrate that that strategy just can't function as a way to subvert American democracy. Well, let me respond to, to a couple of points that you made because they're they're very interesting. The, first, as far as the tendency of what someone called postmodern and others call fascist or fascist adjacent movements to have a different attitude toward truth, uh, I think that is 
correct and uh, very interesting. Part of what we've seen people kind of dredge up in the last few years is the history of like Mussolini in Italy or the French fascist movements of the 1930s and how their critics sound like Trump's opponents saying, uh, you know, wait a minute, they, you know, they are willing to uh, completely invent things and yet take a joking tone. That joking tone and the willingness to completely invent things are related on some level and are not necessarily the case for right-wing uh, revanchist populist movements. If you look at, for example, older European nationalisms that you know were uh, had allegiance to the German Kaiser or whatever, you find they might be frighteningly right-wing, but they didn't believe that they had a right to lie. You know, they uh, they didn't view it all as, as somehow joking or. Uh, as Steve Bannon so memorably put it, flood the zone with BS. Um, that's something unusually modern and, and related, perhaps, to the things we object to in, in postmodernism. Inevitably, I have to drag it back to law, because law has its own attitudes toward these concepts. Uh, in general, on bad faith, it is true at one and the same time that bad faith is not illegal in itself, the same way speech is not illegal in itself, but that bad faith can be the trigger for the difference between legality and illegality. If you go uh, and file for, uh, my example is if you file for a veteran's benefit, uh, there may be a legal difference between whether you misremembered having a war record and whether you simply lied about it. That bad faith can be the difference between committing a serious crime and just getting your application rejected. And so uh, the law, every day, as I say, just as it uh, decides on state of mind, it decides on bad, uh, bad faith versus good faith. Sometimes it's the very same question, in fact. Um, but at the same time, bad faith that stops short of putting your hand in the till in some way, uh, the law will not punish. And that's uh, I, the way I, I describe it sometimes with respect to this Trump indictment is that they could have come up with coup rationales all they wanted without losing the protection of the First Amendment. Uh, it required that additional sticking their hand into the till of forging the documents or uh, trying to change, uh, uh, try, trying to convince a state official to do something that violated the law or, you know, try to uh, hold up by confusion and misdirection the constitutionally required counting of electoral votes. Uh, it took that additional step to turn it into a criminal conspiracy. So bad faith, I'm afraid we will always have with us. I hope we don't have as much as today, <laughs> but we'll always have some bad faith with us. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist. Mm -hmm.